All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Friday afternoon headlines. A development panel has struck down proposed changes to a $320 million development on the Chellingworth Motors site, including an additional 137 apartments. The Joint Development Assessment Panel spent an hour of its two-and-a-half-hour meeting today behind closed doors, but ultimately refused the changes to the apartment building on Stirling Highway. Victoria-based companies Grange Development, Gurner Group and Costa Property Group are behind the $320 million project. The proposed amendments included an increase in height of the central tower from 17 storeys to 21 storeys, 10 additional car parking bays in the 506 Bay car park and an additional 137 apartments. But the JDAP members voted 4-1 to one to refuse the amendments at today's meeting, saying the proposed changes were too substantial and required a new application. The current application would take the number of apartments in the development from the approved 231 to 368. And in other property news, Brookfield has started site works at its Lot 6 development in Elizabeth Quay, where it will build a 19-storey office tower. Business News understands that accounting firm EY intends to move into the tower from its existing building at Mounts Bay Road, which Brookfield also owns. The company is expected to develop Lots 5 and 6 at Elizabeth Quay as part of a two-tower development, with approval for a 55-storey tower on the latter site, while earthworks have begun on both lots. Brookfield says Lot 6 is currently its focus. Its Lot 6 development, also referred to as 9 The Esplanade, will include 32,000 square metres of office space, including state-of-the-art end-of-trip facilities and flexible working spaces. 9 The Esplanade is likely to be another job for Multiplex, which is owned by Brookfield and is currently building the Chevron Tower. And Deep Yellow Chief Executive John Borshoff says it will be full steam ahead at the newly merged WA business on the back of the latest spell of uranium interest. A scheme of arrangement between Vimy Resources and Deep Yellow was officially implemented on Thursday, tying up an all-script merger between the two valued at some $658 million. It comes around eight months after Vimy first put Mulga Rock, the only uranium project in WA with ministerial approval, on the market and marks the the only uranium-centred deal to speak of in the state for the past decade. Speaking to Business News, Chief Executive John Borshoff said the company would not be holding back in terms of expenditure to get projects off the ground. Deep Yellow had around $88 million in the bank as of June. He said the merger had a profound impact on the industry, particularly following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its effect on global energy supply, which has sparked new calls to consider nuclear power. Deep Yellow shares closed up 0.65% today to trade at 78 cents. And coming up next, Matt McKenzie and Jordan Murray talk about the state government's new wages policy, pay pressures and the big change looming for WA's energy market. We understand that business relies on being informed. That's why Business News is your most reliable source of news, industry insights and business connections. To stay fully informed, we encourage you to subscribe to our emails, flick through our magazine and visit businessnews.com.au for daily news updates. It's the best way to ensure you have the information you need to be future ready. Business News. More news, more insights, more connections. 
As always, I'm joined today by senior journalist Matt McKenzie for some analysis of the week in politics and economics. But before we get into our weekly discussion, I wanted to highlight an article he wrote yesterday detailing a possible change in carbon plans for WA's grid. Matt, thanks for being here. What's the news? Uh, Yeah, so basically the state government will be assessing, consulting, considering um, introducing a penalty for high carbon emitting generators in the southwest grid. So that goes from Geraldton, Perth, Bunbury, Albany, Kalgoorlie, places like that. Now, people will already know that um, the government wants to shut down its coal-fired generators, which are Synergy operated. They own Synergy. They can do that. They're going to spend some billions to build new renewables and uh, to build a a bigger and better grid that can handle it all. Uh, The challenge is going to be that if that happens, regulators are are concerned that that the market may not function in a way that actually brings private investment into renewables or into storage and of course then you have a problem so they need to rethink the way the market functions and as part of that they're considering this um, penalty Uh, I won't use the term tax because I don't know if that's accurate it will depend on exactly how the changes get made and exactly what they look like but it will be a penalty for high carbon emitters this is a topic that creates a lot of controversy in Australia, so isn't it interesting? Indeed it does, and we'll have more on that one next week. But in the meantime, we're going to be talking a little bit about industrial action and wage disputes. Uh, it's a matter that we've discussed on this podcast in recent months, and for good reason. Uh, inflation is growing at its highest rates in decades, and with CPI jumping up 5.1% in the year to March, again, WPI growth of 2.4%, real wage cuts are here. Central bankers are concerned about a wage price spiral. Unions are concerned about living standards going backwards. And amid all of that, the state government is staring down increasingly tense entreaties from the union movement to move more aggressively on public sector wages policy. Matt, this fight's been raging for some time. Labor came to government in 2017 and, after making a broader case for budget repair, indicated that the public sector wages would be capped to address a structural budget deficit, with unions generally falling in line. That goodwill now seems to be evaporating. Deficits haven't been a concern for a few years now, and the state's wages bill is far lower than some other states, notably Victoria. That's left the state government's proposal of a 2.75% increase wanting for many. Unions have protested the mega increase, which notably, while still above WPI growth in the year to March, does little to address years of real wage cuts. They're none too happy with the state government's concession earlier this week of a 6% increase over two years, with Unions WA Secretary Owen Woodall pushing for an increase of at least 5%. Inevitably, wages policy, inflation and reality will collide. The state government clearly undershot the mark on its CPI estimates in the last budget. So, Matt, the question is, given all of this, should the government be paying its workers more than 3% per annum? And I guess more broadly, should businesses be picking up the slack and paying their staff some more? Well, let's get to businesses in a second. It's funny you said the government undershot uh, its inflation estimates, um, as did uh, most people out there that were making estimates. They all got them wrong, but that's not today's topic. Uh, Here's an interesting thing. In the 10 years to November 2021, and I actually used average uh, weekly earnings um, rather than the wage price index, which you used, so we might have slightly different numbers, but in WA, 10 years, uh, private sector wages up 20.2%. Public sector wages up 25.5%. Um, that's over the last 10 years. And so uh, people will remember that at the end of the last mining boom, I mean, if you worked in resources, if you managed to keep your job um, or if you changed businesses or whatever, the pay was getting really, really crunched. Um, and then, of course, during COVID, there were a lot of businesses that went down to four days a week and all the rest of it. So there have been times in the past decade where wages, if you work in the private sector, it's been pretty tough. I mean, they've, they've copped it during the economic cycle when things have turned down 
And of course, they do pretty well when things go up. Um, whereas public sector wages over time, over that period, have actually performed better than private sector wages. So that's something that's interesting to note. But what I think about when I hear this debate, I think of the Barnett era. Now, Colin Barnett in 2008 won an election in part promising higher um, pay for teachers. And then uh, in 2013, there was the Nursing Federation B, I think it was, that was buzzing around him at all these press conferences. And he said, OK, we'll give you a wage rise too. And people... After the fact, you know, it, by when the mining downturn happened and there was started to be deficit budgets, people after the fact started to say, oh, well, you paid too many wage rises to the workers or whatever else, um, which is interesting because I'm sure some of the same commentators that were saying the wages should go up were then the ones saying they went up by too much. But here's what's interesting about this is the government went and spent this money, increased wages, not just for nurses and teachers, but for a lot of staff, and the argument was, and you speak to any Liberal minister at the time, they'll say, we need to do this because if we don't, we'll lose everybody to the resources sector. We'll lose our teachers and our nurses and, and all the rest of it to the resources sector. Um, and of course, teachers and nurses are very valuable. Um, but then on the flip side, you got to the point where the government would, would make a budget and say, we're going to spend this much on education, which was up way, way, way up over the Barnett years, over, over eight years. Um, and then they'd say, oh, actually, we need to cut it back a little bit. And you'd get massive protests. So to me, if you go and you pay all these huge wage rises out, um, and then you get to the point where there's a downturn and you need to start going backwards or you need to start cutting staff, then that would seem to be a flawed strategy. And if there is a bit of attrition where some government departments, you know, we keep talking about the state government under McGowan was talking about some of these departments needing to be shrank in size and merged and machinery of government changes. Well, why go through all of that pain when you could simply have a little bit of attrition by workers leaving during the boom years? Now, you don't want your teachers and nurses leaving, but potentially in other public sector departments, um, it would be less of a problem. So... That's something to consider. You don't, want to, you don't want to be in a situation where you're paying these huge pay rises out and then in a few years' time when royalties have fallen and we're in a deficit budget that you can't undo it all. And one other thing about that, um, we're going to talk about the private sector in a second, but there's not an obvious link between um, public sector performance and, and productivity. Uh, whereas a, a lot of businesses, you know, performance is linked to productivity. It's hard to do that in the public sector because the money is coming in through taxes. It's not coming in through, um, you know, fees for services or whatever else. So the link there is a little bit less obvious, which makes it more difficult. I touched upon the risk before of a wage price spiral, and at present I don't know if there's sufficient evidence to suggest wages are applying upward pressure on prices just yet, but from a business's perspective, salaries do comprise considerable cost. Is there an argument for workers to just stick fat with what they're getting at the moment? Well, we talk about a wage price spiral, and I will say something that may or may not attract some controversy, and that is to say that there would be no wage price spiral if we had tight monetary policy and a tight fiscal policy. That is a statement of fact. So we're, we're concerned about, well, it's a statement that I think is a fact. Someone else might disagree with me, but I think it's fairly obvious. You can't have a wage price spiral if your monetary policy is tight. It's the loose money and the big stimulus spending that enables the, the wage price spiral. So... It's more about, I think, what the central bank does than anything else. Now, in terms of whether there's an argument for private sector workers to get paid more, I think there's an argument. It depends on the specific circumstances of the business. But there's a moral thing and an economic thing here. The moral thing is this. If you are a business owner who's asked your staff to work extra hours during the pandemic, 
to do more during the pandemic. Um, during the skills shortages um, over the past couple of years, you've probably had staff in a restaurant or a cafe or nursing home or wherever doing double shifts and all the rest of it. Um, if you've asked people to take on a lot more work or if you've asked your staff to do something differently and better and they've become more productive, then probably the fair thing to do is to, is to give a wage rise. Um, and then on that, I just make the point, and I've said this before on this podcast, the funny thing about inflation is every business that has lots of revenue come in always ascribes all of it to their own genius. And of course, all of their costs going up are just isn't it inflation and isn't it terrible? But you've got to remember that every, most of the costs you have as a business are someone else's revenue. Steel rebar doesn't just fall from the sky. So when the cost of steel rebar is going up, the company that's making it is getting more revenue, right? And in that case, there may not even be an Australian company. But as a general point, one of the things about an inflation environment is when there's all of this demand that's being pushed into the economy, uh, of course, business revenues are going to be going up. Some of it is through talent. Some of it is simply through the inflation effect. So it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit of dissonance, perhaps, to say, "Oh, you know, I'm uh, revenues up and it's fantastic, but I've got to keep my costs down because that's an inflation problem." The revenue is also going up because of inflation, um, and of course, it depends on your specific business. And revenue is probably not going up in every specific business. Some are struggling, um, and so that brings you to a different point, which is if you're in a point where if you're if your business is struggling to compete. If it's maybe in an export industry and it's struggling to compete in internationally or it's in an industry like um, you know, manufacturing or whatever else, um, then it probably is fair. This is the time where um, the only way, potentially, if you have high labour costs, to get it under control is to allow it in real terms to fall as, as inflation hits, basically. And so if you're a business that's struggling to be competitive, um, you may not be able to, or you may not want to pay your staff a full inflation rise uh, or an inflation-based rise. And over time, that'll bring down your real wage bill and it might help you be more competitive. Of course, you're going to have the risk of losing staff. So it depends on the situation of the business. There's a moral argument if things are going well. Um, but of course, there's also an economic argument if things are not going so well as to why, you know, uh, and you know something, if you can't, if you can't pay your staff enough, then maybe they will leave um, and you've just got to, you've got to own up to that. And of course, conventional wisdom would dictate that higher productivity leads to higher wages. Uh, when we talk about wages growth in real terms, what can actually be done to ensure wage growth in the long run? Yeah, it is all about productivity in the long term. That, I mean, that's basically it, right? And we talk about there being a wage stagnation in Australia over the last few years. Well, people forget that during the mining boom, you know, particularly here in Western Australia, wages went way, 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 way up. And that wasn't necessarily productivity-driven. Productivity has since been catching up. But it was driven by the skill shortage and the fact that we just needed workers to build the Gorgon gas plant, basically, and we needed to bring them in from everywhere. So since those projects have been built, um, over time, the output of the economy is kind of catching up to what happened to wages here in, in WA. Longer term, you've got to, as we've said, you've got to improve productivity, but lots of people have different views on how you do that. And quite often someone will say, let's just spend money on this initiative or this social initiative because everyone will be better off and, and it'll increase productivity. The link there is not always that obvious. Um, one thing you can do is uh, there's a lot of evidence that cutting corporate tax, company tax, leads to increased investment inflow, attracts investment from overseas, gets more projects happening. Um, and drives up wages, but that takes years. There's a lot of evidence that upskilling your workers and helping them to have, you know, a better education, higher education, um, that also 
really drives productivity. Also, health of your workers over time. These things drive productivity too because your workers get to do, you know, it's not about working more hours. It's about being able to do something, you know, better with your hours than you did before. And like, you know, here's an example. As a journalist, I've been doing this for eight years now. I'm better at journalism than I was when I started. I still may not be that good, but I'm better than when I started, right? So the productivity improves over time. That's just an example for me. But I know a lot of other workers out there, um, would feel the same way, right? And the more you learn, the more skills you get, the more your productivity gets driven up. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we just need to go and start spending lots and lots of money on education programs because the link between what we spend and what we get is not always that clear. Mm, and one hopes that the profits are passed on in the form of wage increases, which cannot always be guaranteed. Fascinating insights as ever. To read more, including Matt's coverage of a possible carbon penalty for high emission generators, head online to businessnews.com.au. In the meantime, have a great weekend. And Matt, thanks for being here. Thanks, Jordan. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.